Welcome to the best of times and the worst of times. I'm James Doyle. And I'm David Paul. This is a podcast about learning stuff through business. Yeah, and the things that happened in the past that were tough at the time and turned out to be the best thing that ever happened. We set ourselves a challenge as two of the chattiest people we know to stop talking and do some listening. And the only way we could figure out how to do that was to invite some really interesting people to listen to. I don't like it. I want to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, so welcome to Best of Time, Worst of Times with me, David Paul. And me, James Doyle. And uh, James, who do we have with us today? So today we have John Acton, um, extraordinaire uh, strategy guru. John and I have known each other for how long, John, now? Maybe 10 years? 10 years. 10 years, yeah. And we were just recounting when we first met, which was in Berlin. I'll let John explain that a little bit more. We're at uh, an old KGB radio station, mm. but... Um, so anyway, John, welcome to Best of Times, Worst of Times. Can you just give us a quick two-minute background of who you are and your career history before arriving into the studio today? Sure. Um, thanks for inviting me, guys. Yeah. I'm, uh, so John Acton. I am currently the, uh, the founder and CEO of Peer to Peer. Um, but prior to that, I, I spent sort of 25 years plus in, in corporate life. Um, my last role was uh, mainly in the marketing space. So I worked for companies like NatWest and G4S and then Parcelline, which then rebranded mm. to DPD. My last role at DPD, I was on the board based in Paris and I was responsible for all sorts of things. Strategy, um, marketing, communications, sustainability, key account sales and so on. I think that's probably where we first met. Yeah. I left DPD probably just over 10 years ago now wow how time flies but wow. yeah 10 years ago wow and so dpd for everyone who's not from the uk or europe dpd is a express parcel carrier much like fedex or <laughs> or ups over in the mm. usa so john so you're now running peer-to-peer and this is a strategy reset that question again i've just noticed that we're only getting your side profile could you just do come around this around side of you yeah, a little yeah, bit because yeah, yeah. we're going to end up with a load of footage of the side of your, your head rather than your yeah. face we can okay. I think that's a bit better right oh so, yeah much so better yeah, yeah. We, we, edit, we edit all this okay yeah yeah, yeah. back into your peer-to-peer -peer bits mate. so right okay so you sorry peer-to-peer -peer is a core property boards we we build groups yep. of business business owner entrepreneurs Basically, you know, you are the the, the five the, the average of the five people you hang around with most. Yeah. So basically, once a month uh, for half a day, all these entrepreneurs meet and help each other grow their businesses. And then the strategy reset is a, is a, is another product we offer. So you got boards, oh. strategy, um, got it, execution. Yeah. Okay. So I'll lead in with that. There we are. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> so it's, it'll still record, but this yeah. make for a nice edit. Yeah, we can chop it out. All right. So 10 years since leaving DPD, um, and about that long since we first met in mm. Germany. Um, the world's a really different place, John. I think we met before COVID, and now we're in a post-COVID world. In fact, we were talking during COVID over Zoom a fair sure. bit, yeah. And you now have peer-to-peer, -peer, so you're doing boards and strategy resets. Can you just tell us quickly about the boards and then how that links with your strategy reset work? Sure. So around about 2018, I was approached by three guys, three entrepreneurs who had this idea to disrupt the coaching and training space. Um, and so I met with them and then I did a bit of due diligence and I looked at you know some of the big coaching franchises. I looked at these sort of peer board businesses like Vistage and the alternative board and, and I agreed with them that there was a lot of room to disrupt this space because a lot of it was very vanilla, very staid yeah. and very overpriced. So we launched peer-to-peer -peer back in mid-2018. And essentially our core offer is that we, um, everybody should constantly, life's a, a journey, right? It's a mm -hmm. flight and you've got to constantly keep learning and evolving and developing yourself. So peer-to-peer -peer is a, a safe harbor for business owner entrepreneurs to meet once a month for half a day to work on the business and not necessarily in the business and the principle is that somebody in the room is experiencing or has experienced what you you're about to go through yeah. so you can you can share with the room your challenges and opportunities and the, and all the other peers in the room can help you crack it and solve it so that's 
that's fundamentally what we do. But I also, and for 10 years now, I've been working on with leadership teams, helping them to, to uh, improve the critical thinking of the leadership team. Did you know, for example, in Davos for the last five, six years, the number one skill they've identified that leaders need to possess is critical thinking. Really? Right? Yeah. And number two, I think, is is uh, innovation thinking. And number three is getting stuff done, execution. And when you think about it, running any business, whether it's an SME or a huge corporate, you know, you've got to try and outthink, outmaneuver and outpace your competition. Right? You can only do that by outthinking them and by executing it effectively and timely in an efficient way as possible. And that's what we're all about. We help people do that. So if critical thinking is a, an absolutely, I was going to say, it's critical, a <laughs> an essential skill it is. to be successful, could you expand just upon what you think the definition of critical thinking means? Yeah. What, it, what is it? I think, I think it's basically, you know, you know when you, uh, all thinking, everything we think about, whether it's, you know, what shirt to wear today, what shoes to wear, which, how are you going to travel to your meeting, what time do you need to leave? Every piece of thinking we do in day-to-day life and fundamental strategic thinking is the brain's response to asking itself questions, right? So critical thinking is the output from asking the right questions, right? And there are two kinds of consultants in the world, and we've all used consultants, we all know consultants. Mm. 99% of them will be what I would call content consultants, so they have an expertise. They are good at something. And you give them a brief, a problem, a challenge, and they will they will look at it. They'll speak to loads of people. They'll analyse it, and they will present you with some options or or the answer, the solution. Right? What we do is kind of the the, the other end of the spectrum. We're a process consultant. We've just got shed loads of questions. We're the business with absolutely no answers, but what we have got is a shed load of questions. And by asking senior leadership teams the right questions at the right time, in the right order, you unlock better levels of critical thinking. Okay. Whether it's strategic thinking, innovation thinking, disruption thinking, it it doesn't really matter. It's whatever is required for your business at that time. So, John, what you... By asking the right questions, you're helping these organisations get to their aha moment. Exactly. And then from that, you can rebuild the strategy. And is that in part because they've become somewhat institutionalised by the familiarity of how they do things? Do you know what? When when I... The the greatest gift I had was spending 20 years working in corporate at board level because what what you see is firsthand the way senior teams operate. And um, what always intrigues me is is the 99% of the companies still operate in a way where they when they get to their annual planning process it is just that it's a process triggered by the FD usually who has a spreadsheet they send out you've got to populate the numbers yeah, for yeah. next year and so on so right Remember now it well, how right? are we going to get yeah. more of this how are we going to get yeah. less of that yeah yeah right? yeah so this budget day <laughs> the thing is everybody knows it's a planning game right so the yeah. sales director knows that let's say he knows if, if everything goes well they'll hit 100 next year yeah right but he's only going to tell the board that he can only do 70 70 max it's a game it's a planning yeah. game the marketing director the same the hr director the same everybody is is going higher or lower than what they think they can actually achieve to um and then and then there's a deal between all the directors the big d's around the table and that is that i won't ask you a difficult question or throw a hand grenade across the table at you as long as you don't throw one at me, but you throw one at me and you're getting one straight back. Right. So the CEO is frustrated as hell because they know this game's going on. And this is <laughs> and this so, is the problem. So it's like a cartel of limitations. It is absolutely that. A cartel of limitations. Yeah. That actually. That's, I'm going to write that real, down. Yeah, that's, that's a really good one. That's that's right. Right. But it, it's interesting you say that because I think you touched on two words there, planning and strategy. And it's interesting because this cartel of limitation, it's all about planning and don't hurt me and I won't hurt you. And actually, it's completely different to strategy, which is how can we get to where we need to be? And even knowing where that is in the first place, you know, and I, I, John, I'd love to hear your views on this. But do you see a disconnect in the understanding on boards between what is a plan versus what is a strategy? Well, the first questions I ask... um, 
uh, a CEO is what do you understand to be the difference between strategic planning and strategic thinking, right? Mm. And the, the reaction is always the same. They sort of sit back in the chair, roll their eyes, and it's clearly the first time they've yeah. even thought about it for years, right? And the second question I said, I said, let me put it another way. I said, if I was to speak to all of your senior leadership team and ask them in 30 seconds to articulate the strategy of this business or more significantly, what they think the strategy of this business should be in the next three years, and you've got 10 members of your SM, SLT, I bet you I get 10 different answers. Wow. And that means that you're not aligned as a leadership team. You've got different views on the direction mm. the business should be taking. Now, that's not good. And equally, the number of businesses that the CEO is the, is the owner of the strategic thinking, and actually... What a great CEO should be doing is getting the SLT, the whole leadership team, to, to unpack what they think, feel and believe about the business, the environment, the opportunities, put it all on the table and then collectively decide, right, where do we need to go and how are we going to get there? That's strategic thinking. Once you've done your thinking and you've got all your, your critical projects lined up yeah. and you've assigned ownership, then you put a plan in place. Planning is how you execute the strategic thinking. Most businesses go straight to the planning and bypass thinking. Without the clarity of objective, the universality yeah, of objective. So you end up getting yeah. silo thinking, divisions within divisions, where they're all working against each other. And, and you know, that's not a good thing. So just like to share probably a story to resonate on that. If I may, a few years ago, I actually had a board position um, with an aviation services company and the CEO um, had asked me about one of the airports that we were considering to leave. So I said, well, look, you know, I will put together a strategy. So I went away and I put together a strategy and I came back into the board meeting sometime later and went, right, here is the strategy for this airfield. And what I got was, where are the dates and the times and the actions? I went, well, that's the plan. This is the strategy. And, and it then became really abundantly clear that, honestly, at the time I was working for a moron. <laughs> so, but also it was that, there is a disconnect between mm. what people think. And there is that, I think, because corporate life's quite busy, we actually have this over tendency to get in and think that we're executing by planning. And actually, we're not. We're just being busy. We're not really achieving any kind of strategic aim. So mm. to your point, John, I think it does sound like there is a lack of strategic thinking, but it's everyone's perfectly capable. You just mm. need to unlock it. So, so if you were to encounter an organisation that had both the strategic thinking and the strategic planning part down in a way that's mm. in line with your beliefs, what would the answer be when you were to speak to the, the functional heads? Would it be that they understand the objective and their role in achieving that objective? Is that the two things yeah, tied together? 100%. You know, if, if you get the same broad response from all 10 of the executives... And, you know, so they've got this core, it's absolutely nowhere they're going. Yes, the IT guy is going to have an IT spin on things and the marketing guy the same, but fundamentally the responses are, uh, the, the core is mm. the same. So they all know where they're going, they all know how they're going to get there, they all know their role in how they're going to get there and they know the interdependencies between the functions and so on. So it, the, everybody's working together and not against each other. How often do you encounter that? Um, hmm. <laughs> almost never, almost okay. never, if I'm honest. But if you know, I've done probably I should count, let's say, eighty strategic thinking resets over the last eight nine years. And although the great thing is, once we've done it, once we've worked with a the client, they now know the process. They can do it themselves. They often invite us back in because it's great to have a. Sure. A third party to facilitate and, mm -hmm. and just keep things going and keep things moving. But fundamentally, the, the, you're training them to think strategically and the importance of taking that time out to, to align everybody behind the strategy. We, we have an expression when I run, run these workshops, and that is that silence is agreement, right? Silence is agreement. The principle being, if you don't speak up before we move on to the next stage... Yeah. Then I assume you agree. Yeah. Yeah. So, so speak now or forever hold your peace. Yeah, exactly. And so, that's fundamental. There, there are three scenarios, three scenarios where, where we, I guess, 
it works most effectively. Scenario number one is where a CEO has just arrived, just landed, maybe from the industry, from a competitor, mm. or maybe not from the industry. And they come in, instead of spending six months going around visiting depots and branches and saying hello to people and breaking bread and cake. Kissing babies. Kissing babies, yeah. yeah. Instead of doing that, go straight in and say, right, we're going to do a street reset. Because you're going to immediately bring the extended SLT, senior mm. leadership team, into a room. And then together, you're collectively going to design the strategy. Now, what member of the SLT isn't going to love that and think, well, this person's brilliant. And actually, finally, somebody's going to listen to me and what I've got to say. That's scenario one, just landed. Scenario two is where the senior team are divided. They cannot agree. So when I was at DPD in 2008, we were completely split across the whole of Europe about do we embrace B2C or do we stay well clear? Because... You can't make money. Just benefit Sorry, everyone. so business, business to, to consumer. consumer. Parcels to your home when you're Which, probably not in. Yeah, exactly, and that's the whole point. Because, and why is that important? Right, because at the time, most of the CEOs in Europe felt you can't make money delivering right. to the home because the people aren't there. They're away working, so you're going to leave it on the doors. So unless you're a mail operator, you were never going to make you don't, money. Yeah. You don't get okay. the drop density and so on. It's inefficient and so on. So let's stay mm -hmm. in the B2B world, delivering to the high street, and commercial estates where you've got multi-drop deliveries, you make, make loads of money, loads of margin, let everybody else scrap over this impossible to make money B2C. But after day one, we quickly realised that the market, 2008 remember, the market was going e-commerce driven by Amazon and so on. So the high street was going to slow right down and home deliveries would explode. So do we stay in a market we know is going to fundamentally shrink and shrink and shrink or do we find a way to to be better than anybody else at the fast expanding to see delivery market and that's what we did and this was just before e-commerce really took off and amazon prime became a thing oh you're way before amazon yeah. prime so 2008 wow. it's so interesting so, so having been on the fedex side of the fence we were really envious of dpd's technological agility to automate the gap in terms of predictability, your driver will be here within this slot. All of that was revolutionary to us, but actually based upon what you've just been telling us, the tech, the ability to be technically agile was important. And I know the development was actually in silos country by country, which we didn't have. We had to have one universal global solution, which was gonna take years. But actually the strategic thinking is what created that as a priority to then enable the business to go forward. Absolutely right. I'm going to tell you a really interesting anecdotal story. So in 2007, I think it was, we went over to the States, we being um, a handful of CEOs from the big countries like the UK, Germany, France, Poland. We went over to the States and we visited USPS, the United States Post, we visited UPS in Atlanta, and we finally went to Memphis. Memphis. Yeah. And then we ah. flew back to Memphis, right? Now, we were La Poste. Nobody in the States saw us as a threat or anything. We were just, and we, DPD at that time was probably the best kept secret in Europe. So just viewed you as the French post office. The French post office, it's not serious. They're, uh, that's they're mail, over in there. the eyes of the carriage, that, that's exactly. massive. So the yeah. FedEx, what you guys would have been like, would have been giving someone a tour. Absolutely yeah. not interested yeah. at okay. all. Yeah. So we, um, when we were at UPS, we went out with, we saw the Teamsters briefing in the morning. We, we They showed us the parcel and this huge dyad, which is a handheld device. And UPS pioneered those. And we were in awe of this amazing technology. This is in 2007. And myself and my colleague noticed a number, a time on the label. And I said to the guy, so what's this time on the label? You know, it's, it's got today's date and this time. He goes, oh, that's um, the predicted delivery time. We use it for training purposes. And if one of the Teamsters consistently misses a 20-minute tolerance either side of that time, then there's a training conversation to be had. Wow. And they had all sorts of rules, like no left turns or right turns. There's always remember. turn right. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, famous. So you don't go across UPS is always turn right, because exactly. you can turn right on a red light in the US. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, even though the pedestrian has right away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what was what was fascinating, this number, right, was uh, m myself and the, the 
CEO of the UK, we were in a taxi going back to the hotel to get ready to then fly down to Memphis. We both had exactly the same idea. They were using that time as a training thing. We thought, we could do that, but we'll right. tell the customer. Yeah, they weren't applying so it. It's a del- they, because they weren't thinking strategically. Yes. They were thinking, UPS is, a, is a, an amazing, amazing business, right? With great history, great heritage, great people. But... Their fundamental mindset is efficiently, operationally driven, getting more and more, and not putting the and clients so, at the centre. And so it was inside-out thinking rather than outside-in, and 100%. they actually had the keys to the castle probably developed and embedded for years, 100%. but weren't applying it in the correct place. So this is the first time I said this publicly. DPD's predict came from that visit to UPS, and predict was a game-changer in the UK and European um, it was. Parcel industry. So, I mean, the, to be honest with you, John, I mean, it's something we've all spoken about. In the minute, there's this commercial entropy. You see it in, in logistics a lot, particularly parcel logistics, and it is that race to the bottom on pricing. Yet, DPD, and again, I know this from being on the buy side, were a lot higher in the price. I don't want to say more expensive, because to me, it was more about the value. Um, you know, our customers loved it because they got that time. They yeah. felt connected to yeah. the delivery. And there's a lot to be said that you could, taking the commercials off the table, you know, you represented great value to the customer. You, know, you kept them connected. They became part of that journey, right? So, yeah. and that's back in 2008. That was 2007, of- 2008. But I do remember um, Kay Phillips, who was the CEO of DPD in 2007, she coined a phrase, which I think is brilliant. And it applies to many, many industries and situations. Um, the customer will pay a little bit more for a lot more. Yeah. So the, 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 the science or the, the art really is to identify how you can provide more value for money, loads more, so you can charge a little bit more. And then you avoid the race to the bottom. Let everybody else scrap, yeah, yeah. scrap over cost leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's that's really, really it's, it's it's there are so many stories down the line where somebody trips over something that's already hardwired yeah. into the business, mm. and then finds a, a a better way to apply it or a better way to utilize that ingredient that you've already got, and that's that's mind blowing because I would argue today that that in that market space I'm long out of it, but as a consumer I still regard the final mile DPD experience as the lead that everybody yeah. else is still trying to catch up with. And of course, those one hour slots have become 15 minute slots yeah. and your driver's name and you can change it. And uh, yeah, that, yeah. the people have caught up bit by bit, I mean, but it, it's still it's still golden, isn't it? It's, it's a great idea. I mean, I think in, there's some uh, stories out there where other people have tried to take that and extend it. There was, um, I saw it oh, years ago, John, I think we might've been at the same show. There was a firm in the US based in San Francisco where of course you could choose your driver and and of course every oh, yeah. every, every yeah. <laughs> so, so the, boys it was, than others. Yeah, yeah it was uh was yeah. Urban fetch or something, something like, like that, that. Yeah. yeah and and they they immediately worked out that they actually had a a bit of a problem there because if you could choose your driver they were actually putting some people at risk great idea but it was a step too far mm. but then coming back to the the experience that you gave us that was you know that was good and it came out of this critical thinking you know, actually being able to think differently. Um, it's funny, you were talking about boards, and mm. uh, I mean, you've you, you these boards, these groups, but when we talk about a board and everyone's sat there, and what, what do you call this? This, uh, this, this uh, protecting, what, what do we call that? That was the. Uh, I don't know, did what you did write we, it down? Yeah, you wrote it down, yeah. What was that? We, I, I, came, I coined the phrase a few collective limitation or something. Oh, yeah, it was, should, I was going to write it down. Yeah, but you oh, asked me another question. We'll have to rewind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll have to find collective. It. Okay, I'll, I'll do this bit again. So, <laughs> so we were talking about boards um, yeah. a few minutes ago, and you were talking about how within a board, um, a management board, you can actually have people who are collectively limiting themselves by promising not to throw stones at each other. Right? Yeah. But you also talked about how this might be the first time someone in that room experiences something, but other people there may have. You know, what are the, some of the, the times where you've actually seen people have shared bad experiences and lessons that they've learned, which have actually been for the good of everyone else in the room? So just so I understand the question, you're talking within the same leadership team, you've yeah. got an individual who, I guess, exposes a, a, a vulnerability or yeah, a weakness Yeah, this was a rough a time for me, yeah. Right, okay, yeah. and how that then... I think... I think one of the one of the issues 
you know, medium large companies have is is getting the single leadership team to have empathy and understanding for each other and each other's function. And that can only come through a better, if you like, cross-functional understanding of the challenges each each function faces. So I, I remember, you know, finance being referred to as the selves prevention team. Yeah, right? yeah. Because marketing the colouring in team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that so so you know each each division has, has yeah. got a, a, a you know a slightly prejudicial tarnished view looking from the outside in. So what I always encourage leadership teams to do is to, is to try and and understand what it's like on the other side of the equation. So one, one thing I, I encourage teams to do is do something we call uh, a talk talk. Talk as in T-A-L-K and T-O-R-Q-U-E. Ah, okay. Because talk, as we know, is, is, is the efficiency of an engine. So what I do is we'll say, right, okay, each person, each functional head, each director comes with a, a specific challenge, frustration, opportunity that they're facing right now. If they could fix it, or grab hold of that opportunity would move their needle on considerably, right? And quite often, the solution is somewhere in the room in terms of another function being able to un- to leverage the blockage and get things moving again. But so what, not only do you fix the issue and the, that function's needle can move forward, but also the understanding around the room just grows and grows and grows. And once you go around the room, this can take 90 minutes. You know, each person's got 10 minutes under the spotlight you get an, an immense sort of um, closeness and empathy and so on, and you're also fixing stuff. So the divisions within divisions, the horrible word silos, start to dissipate and disappear, right? But to make it work, you know, the, the, the functional heads or directors have got to not be like this and protected. Mm-hmm. They've got to, you know, show the vulnerability and say, look, I've got a real problem here because I can't do this until this is done. But I have no control over, over this thing. So over it's here. almost like relying on the dependency. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And and I think it's, um, yeah, you know, we have an expression, you know, you know, conversations matter, right? Yeah. You know, and having deep conversations is really important. That's D-E-A-P. You know, development, engagement, attitudinal, and performance-based conversations. Really, really important. Do you have one trick that you can always use when you... you you go into a room and if they're all looking a little bit frozen and unable to shift their thinking into that more open mindset, do you have one trick or something that you use to try and get them to thaw out a little? Mm, wow, that's a good question. Um, I tell, you smile? I tell, no, I'll tell you what we do do. I'll tell you what we do. So we, <laughs> what you do, David. You just I, smile, I, just, I just tap that thing and it normally Jazz disarms hands. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you could do the usual stuff that a consultant will do. And say, right, everybody, I want you each to share with the room a secret that nobody else knows about. You can do that stuff. But, <laughs> yeah, that can get pretty dark. <laughs> it can. And, and suddenly people will start to feel uncomfortable. So what, what I would tend to do is, is I, I strongly recommend whenever we work with a company or a new leadership team for the first time, is we profile all of the individuals in the room. We use a tool called Contribution Compass. Other tools are available like DISC or Colour Insights or Myers-Briggs and so on. Now, Contribution Compass is... um, So basically what you're trying to get to is the FQ, the flow intelligence, right? Because we all know what IQ is. We all know what EQ is. FQ is the next big Q, right? FQ. FQ, flow intelligence. Now, what do we mean by that? So when you go to the gym... Right, mm-hmm. you know that. Let's say you've got a personal trainer, and the personal trainer says, "Right, James, I want you to get over there and do twenty minutes on the rowing machine." You hate the rowing machine. It I'm going to go the you, other way. I'm, it I'm, takes I'm, you out of flow, but you've <laughs> yeah, got to do it because yeah. that twenty minutes feels like an hour. Yeah. He then says, "Right, I want you to go over to the cross trainer, which you love. That puts you in flow. Yeah. And that twenty minutes feels like five. Right. Business is just the same. How many times? You kick the can down the road on this little thing which just takes up for you hate doing and so on, right? Yeah. So we always profile leadership teams. So then I know what what learning styles people have had, what, what their energies are, are they creative thinkers, are they great at refining and polishing and improving things? Are they great at standing up and, and talking in public and shooting from the hip? So if you've got two people and one's let's say got got low um sort of confidence about speaking in public, for example, and you were to say to them, right, I need you tomorrow to deliver my presentation because I've got to go over here, and it sends them into a total flap speed. 
if you understand, if you like, the energies of these individuals, you then make better choices. But equally, everybody else knows that that guy over there is, is brilliant at asking challenging, wide and deep questions and not taking things at face value and, and looking under the bonnet to see what's working. So if I've got this great new idea, who am I going to give it to in order to check whether this is a, a really good idea or just me shining another, chasing another shiny object in the playground? The last thing I should do is to give it to somebody just yeah. like me because they'll just agree with me and go, that's amazing, John, crack on. No, give it to the guy over there who's going to say, well, I'm not sure about this. Let me have a good look. I'll come back to you in two days because that guy is going to really scrutinise whether you've got some value and if you're really unlocking something that's got commercial value for the business. So that's why it's really important to know the, the if you like, below the waterline, your SLT, your senior leadership team. Yeah. So flow intelligence. FQ. FQ. Is FQ your flow quotient? The, that, it's almost the direction of the wind where you're starting a task, right? Whether it's behind you or in front of you in terms of how you apply yourself. Yeah. Is that why? Right. Is that why the Friday before a fortnight's holiday, I always get two weeks work done in about four hours <laughs> yeah. because the wind is with me, I'm motivated, I'm clear, and I'm you're in the flow. flow. Yeah, there's an amazing technique I, 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 I use myself, and I, I read it somewhere, it's called the Pomodoro Technique, right? Heard of this, yeah. Right. yeah. It's, it's, I think Pomodoro is Italian for, for ori uh, tomato. tomato yeah. And basically, you know the old tomato timers? Yeah. The principle is if you've got a task that you've been avoiding and avoiding and avoiding, but you're going on holiday on Friday, it's now Thursday evening, and you know you've got to get this done or you can't go on holiday and have a good time, then what you do is, is you literally break it down into, for me, I go for 50 minutes at a time. I say, right, I'll set the time for 50 minutes. I will blitz it. I won't look at any email, I won't look at my mobile phone. I'll just crack on with this task that takes me out of flow. And then I'll give myself a 10 minute break. And then I'll set myself another 50 minutes. So basically you're breaking it down and you can force your way through this sort of quagmire because you're out of flow right mm. so pomodoro is a brilliant technique to overcome these things that you just keep putting off okay. we, and we all do it so it, that's the cure for procrastination for 100 percent. what's yours well so uh, it really resonates with me at my busiest i was receiving three 350 emails a day and some of it was spam some of it was read-delete, some of it was action, some of it was FYI. But they all had to be glanced at, categorised, actioned or not. And I had some help from a PA, but I, I, I observed that if I had a, an, a day in my calendar that was empty of meetings, I could fill my entire day doing those emails. Mm. But if I happened to be out of country and had 45, 50 minutes in an airport lounge, sat with no other distractions, I could do it all in an hour. Mm, yeah. But, and, and, I, and again, I, I I'm, I'm not familiar with the FQ. Left on your throne, don't you? It's well, it was, it, it was just absolute focus, no distractions, and critically, the carrot at the end of it, especially if you know normally you're flying home on a Friday evening, was if I do this now, I get a Saturday and a Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if I, but I would quite, mm. I would quite readily allow that workload to flow into every corner of a day when I was sat in the office. So it's, again, it's that it's that day before holiday. You just, if you're determined to do it. You can do it. You can do it. There's a really good little book and it's called Inbox to Zero. And it's from the same guy that wrote Productivity Ninja. And mm -hmm. he talks about an inbox system where you just have three and it's like to read, waiting, action, yeah. and drop them in. I mean, <clears throat> which I think is quite, I mean, I practiced that. For me, I went the other way and did the be brief, be brilliant, be gone and work on the principle of, but that's how I communicate out. So I'm saying, this is how I communicate out. And if you send me a meeting invite, um, which doesn't meet that criteria, I'll, I'll delete it. And it sounds quite brutal, but it's the same as my worst thing in the past, and this is where it came from, is when people used to email me and they'd copy in everyone. And then they'd even copy in my boss, and I used to delete. Just yeah, and I yeah, made yeah, it clear yeah. to everyone, yeah. if you do that, I will delete the message if it doesn't meet these criteria. And then when I actually ended up being the boss, that was great because I said to my entire team, that's what you do now. And if mm. we do that, and, and it's funny because those behaviours yeah. were so widely accepted across the piece that people found more time to be social and actually get through, they didn't have the 45 I, I minute email. I had a COO at FedEx yeah. who had a rule in his inbox, which was if he, if he was CC'd, it went straight to, to, the, 
to the deleted file. Brilliant. Like, you know. Do you know, there was a guy at Virgin years ago, uh, Virgin Media, and he refused to use email. If you wanted to contact him, you had to do it via Twitter because he knew it was 127 well, there's, there's characters. There's another guy at Virgin yeah. who refuses to use email, which is Richard Branson. I can believe that, yeah. paper. Mm. Still pen and but isn't that thing is about short communication? You talk about um, mm. FQ, EQ. I mean, we are in this world of information overload, and actually, it's it's almost that like, oh, you know I've got to climb this mountain of emails that you and it's that constant deluge of it's coming in. When does it stop? And I don't know if you've ever done it where you're leaving a job and you don't have to look at that inbox anymore. You're like, well, I've, I've done that in the job. Someone taught me about a term, and I'm sure there's probably a, a, a yeah. well-regarded author that coined this term, but I'm afraid I can't name them. And it was email bankruptcy, oh, which wow. was simply when it's when you're so far behind and it's so insurmountable, you move your inbox to so a to a separate folder and just start again. There was, mm. and then wait to see mm. what comes and bites you on the ass. And I did it twice in my career, and I'm still waiting for the hand grenade yeah. to go off. It was fine. There was a guy. It was fine. Um, Games. Sorry, these are, these are useful yep. tips, right? Because it, it is this information overload society that we live in. But there was this one person that I knew, and he would deliberately, and he said, I don't care what people think. And everyone thought he was rude for doing this. He went, I am on holiday for the next two weeks. Any emails that you sent at this time will be deleted. And that was it. And he'd come back and delete and had a clean inbox. I, and it was brilliant. I love that. Uh, it always used to sort of vex me. You know, you can leave these holiday messages. I'm away for the next two weeks. Yeah. Uh, in my absence, please. The problem is the email still sits there. And you, when you come back, you don't know if anybody's dealt with it. I would I would much prefer, and I'm sure yeah. you can do this. I'm sure there's a way of doing it, of shutting my email box so no emails land. And a message goes back to me saying, John has not received this but, email. Yes, so I think it was Daimler. Somebody in Germany who were heavily works council embroiled. Mm. Might not be Daimler. Um this is a long time ago, it became a policy that when your out of office clicked on, your email account on the server was switched off. Mm. So it bounced and mm. it would resume at 8 a.m. on the first Monday back. That That's actually the way to do it. Yeah. Which, which comes into this thing about accountability as well. If this email is important and if you are doing your job effectively, then if someone needs to be accountable because you're not in the business, they're already aware. You know, you can't, you can't just absolve that. There was... Um, an article years ago, I'll see if I can find it, and it spoke about something called ADT, Attention Deficit Traits. So we have ADD, Attention mm. Deficit Disorder, uh, and they describe uh, a standard you know, employee in an office and knees going up and down, they've got a lot of caffeine in, they're 10 minutes late for a meeting that popped up on their Outlook, they're on a call and the emails are still coming in. And actually it's the showing traits of attention deficit disorder even though they don't have it because of the environment that they're in mm. and taking what you're doing with the, the the strategy reset john you know do you see this now where there is this this culture that you actually almost need to release people from these overwhelming environments to actually get back to that critical thinking and just on that question do you think that maybe that's some of the reason why we're so limited on critical thinking in corporates today so answering your first question, I, I think, I'm thinking now of the 80 strategy resets I've done in the last know, seven years or so. 80? 80. 80. Eight zero. Eight wow. zero. I okay. would say none of them were done in the head office, in the, in the office. Right. They all went off site. And there's a reason for that. It stops people drifting back to their desk during a, a, an energy recharge break because it's an energy recharge break for a reason right the last thing you want them to do is to go and start doing their email you know the mobile phone picking it up and so on so you don't you've got to take people out of the environment mm. not because it, it it also freshens things up as but, well but also because otherwise that session you're trying to run is actually just disrupting the most important thing in the day which is the day-to-day -day work that Absolutely. you're disrupting right yeah, so yeah, if you yeah. almost have to downgrade yeah. business as usual for a bit and say no this is we're saying this is more important yeah. i mean you know when, when i when i talk to ceos about about you know should we do it or not do it you know, the, it, it's it's never the price of the of the workshop itself. The issue for them, it's the opportunity cost of taking their entire leadership team uh, out of the business for two days. Yeah, that's the big cost. So what we sometimes do is say, do a day, one week, and then a day the following week. So they're only actually because they're they're worried about the business continuity, things running and so on. 
which is kind of ridiculous because the first question then should be, well, hang on a second, guys. There's something fundamentally wrong with the way you run your business if you can't spare these people. How inverted is your pyramid if the business can't run without you for a couple of days? there, There is that saying that if you work to make yourself redundant, you'll always have a job. Yeah. 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 I have a question for you. True or false? Go on. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Oh, that's good. I love and hate this question. Okay. I hate it because it's one of those cliches which is so overused. And everybody else says, oh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. No, 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 it doesn't. Culture is part of your strategy. Culture is part of your strategy. If you think about it, your strategy is, is, is everything that drives your, your business from where it is now to where you want the business to be. It delivers your vision, right? So culture's part of that whether it's a negative culture you've got or a real positive culture you've got it's part of your strategy and always should be so no it's a nonsense point <laughs> okay so that you're saying that's a false a false yeah. uh, can a strategy be successfully executed upon with a poor culture mm, probably not almost certainly not a lot harder well, right? yeah yeah because well the thing is you know define a poor culture if it's a poor culture, then it's a culture that, 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 if you like, takes wind out of your sails in terms of travelling forward or travelling where you want to be. So therefore it can't be a good thing. And if you're taking wind out of your sails, then you're getting to your destination much slower because of the culture drain it has on your business and the energy that's sucking out of the room and so on. So to answer your question, a poor culture will slow you down, may even send you into reverse. Wow. Okay. So, best of times, worst of times. Mm-hmm. So, we have this principle about something that we thought was awful at the time turns out to be one of the best lessons we ever had. So, you've had such a long and quite significant career, you know, especially, especially like this point about discovering the predict service when you're in America. But, John, if you don't mind sharing and being vulnerable for a minute, mm-hmm. what was your worst of times that then later on reflection turned out to be one of the best? Easy. It's 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 the circumstances which I left DPD because I I was living in Paris with the family. The family. So we we lived in Paris from two thousand and five to two thousand and eleven. So six years. And we decided it was time to move back to the UK. The kids were all of a certain age. You know, I've got four kids. And um, so we moved back in the summer of 2011. But I agreed with my boss, the president, Paul Chavan, that I would, let's see how it goes. And I, I loved the company. I absolutely mm. loved the company. I thought I had the best job in the world. But after about three months, uh, previously I was away for 50% of the time, right? Um, which was tough on, on, on Greta and, and, and tough on me as well. But it, it, it was a, a means to an end. We had a great life. We loved living in Paris. But when we moved back to the UK, or the family moved back to the UK, I took a tiny little flat in Paris near the office, and I was away all of the time. And I, I realised that this could not continue. So at the same time, I remember getting the Eurostar back to Paris on a, on a Monday morning, and the boss knew that I had to, the earliest I could have a meeting would be at 10 o'clock. Mm. Otherwise, I've got to come Sunday night. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I had to be there at 9 o'clock for a meeting, which meant I had to go on the Sunday night. I remember rocking up to the office on that Monday morning and for the first time ever looking up and just, you know, yeah. that sigh. Okay. And I knew something had to change. And, and in the end, but... That said, it, so that was my worst moment. And then I had a conversation with the boss around about December 2011. It just wasn't working for me and, and, uh, and so on. And I also felt that people were treating me differently. My team in Paris, I had a team in Germany, they were fine, but the team in Paris all thought he's going to go, he's going to go, he's going to leave, he's going to hand his ticket and his family's back in the UK, it's unsustainable. So they were all jockeying to be my successor. So the whole thing started, I started to not enjoy it as much. So I agreed it was, it was time for me to leave. And um, but, but that was the worst moment because once we discussed how I was gonna leave in terms of severance, etc., then it was great because I actually had to work 12 months until they restructured things behind me so on, but I left it on the best possible terms. And, I, I, and the, the best of times was 
getting once I'd made that decision, I was on the Eurostar going home and I was I was doodling and I was thinking about what am I good at? What do I really enjoy doing and what will people pay me to do? I knew I didn't want another job in parcels because I was too loyal to DPD. Be like you. Yeah, FedEx. I, mean, I could never no. sleep with somebody so else. So I, I could never possibly do <laughs> yeah. that. Likewise. So I thought, I've always harboured the idea of, of working for myself, building something for me. So by the time I, with the Eurostar doctor at St Pancras, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, a strategic consultancy, and I had a name, Glovista, because I checked on names.co.uk, it was Brilliant. free, and I brought Glovista.com, and that was the name of my company, I registered it the next day. Amazing. Cool. So that's, that's, that's great. That, that is actually... That's, but I mean, it's interesting, basically, I get a sense, it's very similar for me, there was, everything was fine, and then one day I, for the first time, thought, I'm having to think about whether I enjoy this anymore. Yeah. It's over. Do you know, it's, over. it's, yeah. it's that thing... I mean, the question is, would you wish that on anyone else in their career? And sadly, it's a rite of passage. You never want anyone to have a rough career, but you do want people to have those best of times. But you, there is always that one moment where you think, what am I doing? And, and so many people, when they have that sense of, that sinking feeling of, am I in the right place? So many people are not in a position to just make a decision, which you were empowered to do, I was empowered to do, you know, so we're, we're very fortunate. That's a beautiful story. I love that, John. That's, mm. that's I've got some quick fire questions. Jeffrey we Gabriel, call these yeah. the smash hits questions, okay? Go on, so don't go don't overthink these. <laughs> and whilst they are going to go out in the public domain, you know, you're allowed to change your mind if anybody challenges. Okay. Mm. Kind of cultural questions. So, um, today, what's your favourite movie of all time? Can I go for two? Sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Correct. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Okay, I'm interested to see what number two is. It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Oh, that's Seasonal good. Seasonal as yeah. well. I watch it every Christmas. My, my kids all take the mickey out of me. It reminds me of when I was a kid. It's such a wonderful film, wonderful story. Uh, it brings out all the all the goodness of humanity and all that stuff. Great, great film. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Great soundtrack. Love it. Brilliant film. Great fun. Watched it probably about 20 times. It's my son and daughter's favourite film, and I feel that that is sign enough that I've done a good job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny, actually. My question was going to be, what is your favourite Christmas film that's not a Christmas film? <laughs> so we like Die Hard. Oh, it's got to be yeah. Die Hard. Yeah, you see, this is it. Everyone yeah. goes Die Hard, don't they? I went Wally, and you, you had the... I think well, I, got, I've got a weird theory. I think that Holiday by Madonna is a Christmas song. You think about the yeah, I'd agree US with that. Yeah. Holidays. The lyrics are about it's a oh, day. Okay. Well, that's not a vacation, a day. So, so I think it might be a Christmas. It? Maybe it's Thanksgiving, but which is this week as well. Yeah. Thanksgiving's day after tomorrow. Yeah. What's your favorite question on the Smash Hits ones, James? Oh, it's easy. What is your favorite episode or moment from the TV show Friends? Mm, crikey, um, we've not actually had anyone say. What's friends? Yeah, it's coming. I think it's the one. I think it's the one with the with the ducks and so, so I can't remember the the, the uh, oh gosh. There's so many. That's such a difficult question. That's the hardest question you've asked me. My favourite friends episode. <laughs> it's because there's so many. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's topical, isn't it? It's so sad. You know what's happened recently. Matthew Perry. Yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. really sad. But I love Friends. But um, yeah. Oh my goodness. I don't know. But your favourite Matt Perry moment, or favourite one line from Matt Perry, that's a good one. Mine's the... Uh, I, love, I love the way that that stupid question bamboozles, bamboozles everybody. everybody. Yeah. We can ask you deep and meaningful what's the most difficult yeah. moment in your life. You, can't, you can tell us in a heartbeat. Which favourite episode you know, of Friends? But, but, and I can see you're torn in two. The, the Matthew Perry one, probably it's the one where they... I don't know where they are, but he wakes up in, in, in bed and there's a knock at the door and he's hiding under the covers. I think it's the oh, London yeah. episode. Yeah, the London, London episode, yeah, 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 with yeah. Monica, isn't it? That's yeah, yeah. it. That, that's probably the, the Matt Perry moment. Which is one of the best moments in yeah. TV, full stop, you know, yeah. when they finally get together. Yeah. Favourite album of all time? Oh, Stone Roses. Correct oh. answer! <laughs> and this will be the last episode of uh, Best of Times, Worst of Times, because he's absolutely right. That was, that was the, that's like getting word Correct one. Correct answer. The money it? I spent yeah. following that band. Really? Um, I, I saw them at Wembley in... I was there. Uh, in 2017? Yeah, I was there. I, I was there. I went with... I bought tickets for... I got four tickets for myself and my eldest three kids. And um, two of them bailed on me. And my, my nephew, who came with me, Oscar, my nephew, and so there's myself, Oscar, Kasia, and I gave the other ticket to a friend of mine. And we were at St Albans Station, and Oscar was 20, 20 at the time. I said to Oscar, I said, look, Oscar, 
uh, I gave him 20 quid and said, go and get some drinks from the off-licence truck. We've got five minutes, you leg it. So he legged it and he came back. He came back, God bless him, with a whole load of soft drinks. <laughs> oh, I completely no. missed the brief. <laughs> so that was a funny show. It was a glorious sunny day. We all sort of sat, sat outside a pub, yeah. got very sunburnt. Yeah. As if you go to a Stone Roses gig, it's really not about the band. It's about the party in the room. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's always special. The atmosphere was electric, really? and I stepped outside and it went moody, just like that. Yeah, it was a wow. really funny The atmosphere. Blossoms were the support act. Yeah. Uh, also a great band as well. But yeah, no, that was brilliant. I saw Stone Roses in the early 90s um, in Heaton Park. Spike Eye. Manchester. No, 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 I didn't go to Spike Eye. Great film, though, Spike Eye. Yeah, it's all right, isn't it? I love it. That's one of my favorite. That's so, probably, so, number, it's in my top five. So the, the, fi the final Spash It's question is... is Best gig you've been to? Stone Roses. At Wembley? Uh, no, it'd be the so one, the, one. In, the, in Heaton Park, I think it was. Um, yeah, definitely. The Wembley one was brilliant, but, you know, Ian Brown, I mean, they never do encores. He just, no. they just... Well, I like that, though. Play yeah. what you're going to play and get off. Yeah. Just be brief, be brilliant. Be, be brief, brilliant. yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah other gigs I've been to, really, I'll tell you, the worst gig... I'm, I'm, I'm sort of aging myself here. It was the Thompson Twins. God, okay. It was, it was my girlfriend at the time got me tickets, and I, it was awful. It was <laughs> terrible. Um, but were yeah. you going under duress? Under duress. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't last. Okay. So if people want to find you, and they uh, they want to join one of your boards, mm -hmm. um, or they would like to do the smart thing and reset their strategy, how can they find John Acton? Well, they can get me on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, um, so John Acton, peer to peer. They can go to um, peer to peer .global. That's peer p e e r number two peer. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. yeah. Peer to peer. Yeah. Got it. We'll tag you in all the things that we yeah. Put of course. Up as well. Yeah. I think John, it's been an absolute pleasure. That's flown by, right? It has. That's really good. Oh my goodness! It has, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Thanks a million. And you. Cheers. Cheers. That concludes another episode of the Best of Times, Worst of Times podcast. If you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button and also give us a thumbs up, some feedback, share in the comments, tell your friends and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye from James. Goodbye from David.